for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Welcome to the podcast, In and Through Exist, to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name's Tim. My name's Marshall. Marshall, we, we've been sitting here chatting so long. We have. My ears are already warm from they, the headphones. Yeah, mine do. And my coffee is already cold. I finished And mine. almost gone. Mine's, gone. mine's totally gone. <laughs> so, I've been gone for a little bit. You have? Uh, the Feb... International meeting, mm-hmm. Feb national meeting, whatever it is. The, the meeting with the Fellowship of the Evangelical Baptists come together. Yes. So I was gone for that. Uh, spent some personal devotional time mm-hmm. the end of last week. Yeah. So been some catch up time. Yeah. But yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Good stuff. I'm Alex just and I held down the fort while I'm you just were coffee-less. away. Yeah. <laughs> We do our best, Tim. We do our best. I'm just teasing. <clears throat> yeah. So no, it's been it's been a weird week. It's uh, this one's coming out late. Mm-hmm. So between Tim being away and and I was sick for a couple of days, uh, we're we're a little bit behind the ball on this one. But we'll we'll try to get this out and uh, not too late compared to the the normal schedule. So today we're we're squarely. We're going to be squarely within the 20th century. And so I've got a few things. Yay. Some some uh, contemporary events and mm-hmm. whatnot that are going on. Um, 1910, the Boy Scouts of America are founded. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, the Boy Scouts of America in 1910, 1911. Uh, Roald Amundsen. And his team of Norwegian explorers reached the South Pole. Okay. So 1911, why anyone would want to do that? I mean, I guess if you're going to be the first, there's a, there's a degree of like prestige. But mm-hmm. for for those of us here, you know, we've had like three days of winter. We had like a foot and a half of snow on the ground and we're like... I'm done. <laughs> These guys are like, let's go to the South Pole. <laughs> I shoveled the driveway for the first time this season, this okay. morning. Yeah. I'm already over it. <laughs> okay. Um, a big thing that, you know, we don't have to dive too deep in, but we, we briefly mentioned it in the last episode, but 1914 to 1918 is World War I. Mm-hmm. Which you might you might be mistaken because you might think it's 1917 to 1918, because that's the only time that the U.S. was involved. But just like with the Second World War, um, it actually started long before. Uh, no, just, I'm teasing, but uh, yeah, 1914, 1918, World War One. It was beyond what people could understand. the The advancements of technology. Uh, outpaced military strategy. Right. And that resulted in a lot of death. Yeah. Unfortunately. The brutali- the brutality of World War One mm. is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Um there's a film that I watched. I might have mentioned this on an earlier episode. I think it's called Nineteen Seventeen. Mm-hmm. And uh it hit me in a very significant way and, and is probably one of the best films I've seen in regards to World War One because World War II tends to get a lot more attention. Right. Um, 
But uh, yeah, I mean, and and with that, you see tech- technological advancement in, you know, in warfare, whether it's chemical warfare, tanks, you know, aircraft being used, mm-hmm. fighters and whatnot. The machine gun. The machine gun, yeah, was huge. My one of my heroes growing up was a guy by the name of Billy Bishop, who was a Canadian uh, World War One ace, who. Um, Arguably had more kills than the Red Baron. Uh, mm. It's debatable, but in any case, there's an airport up in Owen Sound named after him. On September 16th, 1920, a horse-drawn cart carrying explosives was driven into a busy corner on Wall Street, killing 38 people and injuring many, many others. This was the deadliest terror attack on U.S. soil until... The 1995 Oklahoma City bombing. Wow. Yeah. Uh, 1924, the first Winter Olympic Games are held in France. Nice. So finally Canada can start winning some Olympic medals. (laughs) (laughs) It is different, right? The Summer Olympic count versus the Winter Olympic count. There's discrepancy. Yeah. So it's like, you know, Summer Olympics, it's like, it's always like U.S., China, Australia, just like clean up. And then Winter Olympics, it's like Canada, Norway, <laughs> you know. Yeah. That's, all, yeah. Those, all those swimmers and sprinters have become a thing in Canada. They have. They have. Women's soccer. Our sprinters have been good for a while. Uh, but yeah, no, I know. And none of them are actually born in Canada. They're all born in like Jamaica. <laughs> and then they can move to Canada. <laughs> yeah. Donovan Bailey. Shout out to Donovan Bailey. Anyways, uh, 1925, John Logie Baird, uh, a Scotsman. And an inventor invents the television. And only a few years after that, invents the first color television. In the same year, F. Scott Fitzgerald writes The Great Gatsby. Oh, wow. Oh, man. Great Gatsby. We read that in high school. Mm -hmm. It's good. Mm -hmm. The film they did a number of years ago was was good as well with Leo. Leonardo DiCaprio was was a good one as well. Um, There's something about that era, eh? That just has a certain mystique. Yeah, that whole sort of gangster era thing, It's like gangster and like people, like all of a sudden it's like the modern era's kind of started and people got money and they got, they they don't know what to do with it. So they party and like, it's just a different, different world. Uh, 1928. Yeah. Cause that's, I just did a quick Google on it. That's the height of Al Capone. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. So the Bonnie and Clyde Al Capone thing. Cause there is, there is a measure of, uh, what's, what was it called when they banned alcohol? Uh, prohibition. Prohibition, yeah. Prohibition going on, yeah. Which essentially just like fed money into organized crime. Backfired. Alcoholism rose mm-hmm. and as did uh, gang violence. So yeah, it prohibition just, doesn't work, folks, just so you know. <laughs> just quickly, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a uh, a personal family story. Okay, fun. Side note kind of thing here. During this era, okay, my great granddad, his name was Mitchell Slate. Uh, he was a really quiet guy. Didn't, didn't have a whole lot to say unless you want to talk about Mansfield Tiger football, Arkansas Razorback football. Okay. Right. Uh, he was a world war two or yeah. World war two vet. He was really quiet about that. Some trauma. Didn't want to talk about any of it. Sure. Um, my junior year of high school, I had the opportunity to sit down with him and just get a bit of his life story, things that he wouldn't talk about. Uh, but I, there was a project going around where someone was writing 
the history of our county. Okay. And I I knew he had some pretty interesting stuff, uh, but I had no idea the depths of it. So he was just sort of hoboing around the area, like jumping trains okay. and, and hitchhiking okay. to just go from farm to farm mm-hmm. looking for an opportunity to find some some work. Sure. Uh, when, when the farmers didn't need his help, he would do bare fist boxing. Wow. In, uh, in the bars. Okay. To just make enough money for meals. Right. So like tough guy, he was, yeah. he was probably five, five. Yeah. And just a brick. <laughs> and he would do, he would do bare fist boxing in the bars. He would yeah. help farmers and that kind of thing. Wow. Uh, I, I trust him entirely mm-hmm. just because he's not someone who wants attention or would be extravagant, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one day, he's in eastern Oklahoma, which is maybe a 15-minute drive from where we he lived in Mansfield, right? Okay. Um, he's in eastern Oklahoma doing the whole farm and bar thing, trying to make some money, hitchhiking, throws out his thumb, Gets a ride from this nice couple uh, who drop him off in the next town. Peeks in the door and just says, you know, I'm Mitchell. Thanks a lot. Or does that, sorry, introduces himself, I'm Mitchell. And they're Mm -hmm. like, nice, get in. We'll take you to the next town. Uh, He goes to get out of the vehicle and uh, does again the whole like, you know, thanks for the ride thing. And they're like, it was nice to meet you. Seemed like a great kid. By the way, my name is Bonnie, and this is my husband, Clyde. No way. Yes. That's what he told me. Hitched a ride with Bonnie and Clyde. Wow. And then, like, within the year, their car gets ripped to shreds. Sure. By special agents and their machine guns. Wow. That's so cool. Isn't that amazing? That's so cool. <laughs> I've been waiting a long time for us to get to this era. That's so cool. Oh, I love that. I love that. I love it. Okay, cool. All right, well, let's let's leave it there. Let's leave it there for now um, in the 1920s, although some of the things we talked about might kind of stretch beyond that, but it's, mm-hmm. it is what it is. So today we're going to talk about something that's not entirely new, but we're going to talk about kind of its expression more broadly Mm -hmm. in the Christian world. Um, The fundamentalist modernist controversy or the modernist fundamentalist, however you want to kind of arrange those, those two terms. Now that title or that phrase is often used to describe some specific divisions in particular contexts. So if you Google it, you might come across um, a division that occurred within the Presbyterian Church in America mm-hmm. as one kind of major example of that. Um, but really, the f- modernist fundamentalist controversy is a series of discussions which led to a series of divisions that were occurring across the board, various church groups in various parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it started... You know, this this whole thing kind of started in, in something we talked about a couple episodes ago, you know, the German liberalism right. in the 1800s, that the downgrade controversy that was part of Spurgeon's story in the very late 1800s in England, mm-hmm. and that finds its way to North America. 
Right. And and I just want to point this out really quickly. When sure. we talk about fundamentalists and modernists, there's a part of you that wants to go, that sounds like swings of a pendulum. Mm-hmm. And there's got to be a ton of space in between. In one way, that's true. Not everyone has to be on one end of this pendulum. True. But when these things happen, and they happen today... Still. They... We do not grow out of this table, right. right? Like maybe, maybe as individuals, we can go through some things and then grow and 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 come to a place where we're able to find a little nuance. Uh, but because society is made up of people who only live, by and large, between seventy and ninety years, mm-hmm. there's always a sort of like new need to learn these things, right? Society doesn't progress linearly. We don't have a, we don't have the level of corporate mind that we would like to believe we do. Right. Where we just are progressively societally learning and growing. Mm. We're always coming to a new position to need on this. So, so we're, we are doing this and we have done this. Mm -hmm. Yes, these are some pendulum swings, but what happens is people get dragged to these edges. Right. And and so when we talk about this, there is, yes, a part to say not everyone was an extremist. But they were also doing the same kind of thing where if if you don't hold to this, then you must be over here. Right. And so instead of being able to say in a nuanced way, um, I, I, I take this and this and this from you, but I also kind of can understand their position over here, which is really the healthy and mature way to go about things. Um, what ends up happening is people end up becoming encamped. Right. Because if you're not encamped, then you're hated by all. Sure. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's, that's fair. And, and so, that, and so that tension that, that I just wanted to point out that that, that tension's a big deal. Even, yeah. even those people who would rather have not gotten involved are going to be dragged into various degrees mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it still happens to pastors today. Oh yeah. For and, sure. and churches and, and everyone in society, right? Yeah. So when we talk about the modernist fundamentalist controversy, the, the modernist side of things is really synonymous with liberal theology. So it's something we talked about already. Um, quick recap for mm-hmm. our listeners. What liberal theology generally entails is a movement that seeks to change, adjust, or even abandon doctrines on the basis of contemporary thinking, contemporary science, contemporary ethics, you're often going to see an emphasis on, you know, at least at this time, in particular, Darwinian evolution, biblical criticism, so critiquing mm-hmm. the truth of the Bible. Starting to ask questions about authorship and things like that. Sure, yeah, mm-hmm. and not just not just asking questions, but but seeking to find answers that undermine right. those, the, you know, the kind of historical notions. Um, an emphasis on the social gospel as opposed to the, the gospel, um, a very low view of sin, universalism, et cetera, et cetera. That's what kind of we're talking about right. in a broad way. Right. Okay. Um, and so it, it had kind of advanced from 
where it started, particularly in Germany, as we, we discussed. And it had come across the Atlantic into the prominent seminaries in North America. And in its influence and the response to that influence would ultimately lead to the denominational landscape that we have today, mm-hmm. both in Canada and the U.S., and to some extent abroad, beyond right. that. Um, and so today, though, in light of all that, we get a chance to talk about a particular people in a particular place that's received essentially zero attention thus far in the podcast. Yeah. Why not? And that's Canada. Let's talk about Canada. That's where we are. That's who who we are kind of. Yeah, and I, I think that I think the it, you did a good job laying that out because Thanks. we're gonna talk about how it shows itself in Canada. Sure. Uh because it's fun to have a very local context. We haven't really done that yet, so and we haven't done it, right? Yeah. But these things aren't isolated to here. Uh, they're happening everywhere. You can't talk about everywhere all at once. No. Why not? Let's talk about it. Let's here. do it. Let's do the thing. Okay. So we're going to examine how these divisions between kind of the, the modernist liberal theologians and the conservative fundamentalists played out in our own backyard, mm-hmm. particularly amongst the Baptist church. Mm-hmm. Although the kind of the, the strands of it touch on on groups beyond just the Baptist circle. Yeah, and and the reason why this takes place, not only in Baptist circles, but Pentecostal circles as well. Sure. Like some of the, the reason is that concept of the autonomous local body yeah, is going to fuel that, right? Yep. When you have, uh, when you have top down, where the top goes, the rest goes. Right. Yeah. Right. And so you, you will get some things like splits. Sure. In denominations where there's a significant group of people that won't follow where the head is going. Uh, but it doesn't happen as, uh, it's not as upsetting right. on a mass scale as it is when you are right. in a concept, and as a, an ecclesiological concept of the autonomous local church. Right, right, right. Which is where Baptists are at, right? right. So, so first, I think we need to define fundamentalism. We defined okay. liberal theology and kind of equated it with the modernist movement mm-hmm. within the church. Fundamentalism is one of those words that's very charged today. Oh, yeah. So people hear the word fundamentalism and they get particular pictures, whether it's planes crashing into the towers of 9-11, whether it's Westboro Baptist holding up uh, signs at soldiers' funerals. Mm-hmm. There's all these you know, there's all these things that have kind of been attached to fundamentalism, but in in its original definition and in maybe how we ought to understand it, how would you define fundamentalism? I would say I would say this is this is hard this is a hard thing to do because of the difference between what it was and what it becomes. Sure. Um so when you do the whole what is fundamentalism People are going to say, well, that's not what I know of fundamentalism today. Sure. Or at some point along the way when we choose to take our snapshot 
can say that's what it looks like. Mm-hmm. In some ways, the fundamentalist movement is a response. It is. It really is. And responses, it's never healthy to respond as a movement. Right. As to much define as, your movement by what you're not. Right. And right. what you are. And right. so and so when you when you establish who you are and what you believe as a response, you do a couple of things. You run the risk you run the risk of doing a couple of things, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. You run the risk about making much about small things. Sure. Yeah. Um, because maybe someone is out to lunch on a small thing and now you need to write that into your mission statement. Right. And all of a sudden it gets elevated. Right. Right. Another another issue that has um, when when we're responding is if a group is moving a certain direction on a number of things, Mm -hmm. a response feels like it needs to be antithetical on all things Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and not show any line of gradation. Right. And what can happen is you get into fence building. Right. And that's that's the danger. That's the danger of a conservative response. The danger of a liberal response is you blow up every fence, right? Right, and everything becomes. <laughs> there open. are no fences. Just right. do whatever you want. Yeah. So, so in these pendulum swings, as as movements become responses to movements, by and large, a liberal response is a blowing up of all fences. Everything's on the table, mm-hmm. and a conservative response can be become can have this constricting fence. That is unbiblical and unwarranted. Yeah. Overly constrictive, yeah. Which is what's going to happen to fundamentalism over time. Oh, for sure. Initially, the concept is to say we are a people who believe some very specific first order doctrines that the church has always believed mm-hmm. in orthodoxy. Yeah. And these things that liberal theology ha- are. We are not. Right. Yeah. Authority of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, miracles. Yep. Right? We we believe that a supernatural God is capable of supernatural things. Amen. Yep. Right? Um, or or that God himself is even supernatural. Right. Right? right. Um, so, authority of Scripture, the miraculous capacities of mm-hmm. God, um, in some cases, Trinity— uh, the return of Christ. Yep. Divinity of Christ. Yeah. All of all of these things that have been orthodox up to the point of liberal theology, mm-hmm. um, and and now in this sort of modernistic movement where, which is basically uh, liberal theology full grown. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And so, responding to these is to say we hold to what was beyond this. Mm-hmm. In in opposition to this, yeah. After a while, there's going to be a level of fencing that says, "Well, some people have taken this, and it becomes slippery slope." So what we're going to do is instead of saying, "Well, the Bible stops here," mm-hmm. we're going to stop way back here, mm-hmm. so that people can't even get get to the edge of what the Bible says, so that yeah. they can't fall off. Yeah. Which is, if the Holy Spirit didn't choose to do that, it's not your place either. Yeah. So so to kind of synthesize I think what you're saying and kind of you telling lead, me I rambled and to lead <laughs> to synthesize I that did. and to lead into the further conversation when we're talking about fundamentalism in this era we're talking about kind of a a 
let's, let's call it a classical historical view of fundamentalism yep. in which very simply, here's the connection you can make with the term. Do you believe in the fundamental views of the Christian faith? Right. Authority of scripture, um, divinity of Christ, Trinity, Trinity, su- supernatural aspect of who God is, those things. Mm-hmm. The authority of Scripture. Yeah, th- yeah. So those were the dividing lines. Mm-hmm. Now, now, when people hear the word fundamentalism, they think of churches that dictate how long a man's hair can be, how long a woman's skirt should be, whether or not guys should be able to grow a beard or not. Mm-hmm. And that is not what we're going to be talking about and not what, at least for me, knowing where I'm going with this, not what I'm going to be defending. Right, and, and I would say... I would say the greater majority of our listeners, whether it's because you're a part of our local church, mm-hmm. um, whether it's because you found us on the Gospel Coalition, yeah, or you're just a like-minded believer, just a like-minded believer, right? Chances are you would not fall into the camp of what is now fundamentalism, right? You would have thrown, you would have stopped listening episodes ago, right? Right, you would have said these people aren't taking it far enough. Uh, sure, they're giving too much grace here or here. Yeah, you would have left us by now. You would have left if you wouldn't be listening. So you would not today be classified as a fundamentalist. Mm-hmm. Classically, yeah, a hundred percent, you would. Yeah, yeah. If you believe the Bible's true, you're a fundamentalist. Right. Like that's that. Like like classically. Again, we I understand language changes, meanings of words change over time, but. And I realize that, like, fundamentalism in our modern culture has all these negative connotations. Mm-hmm. But as a, in, in, in truth, as a biblical fundamentalist, if you believe that the Bible is true, if you believe Jesus is who he said he was, and that the, the Bible describes accurately what he did for us, you are a fundamentalist. Would have been. You are a classical fundamentalist. I want to grab that. I want to take that You want to regain it? I want to take it back. I want to take the evangelical title back, and I want to take the fundamentalist title back. You know what? I'm with you. I'm with you, and you know that I am, because I hate—I was reading a book this weekend in my time away, Uh, and in in reading the book, the guy was describing these different approaches to a particular teaching of Scripture, and he said, let's— for the, for the sake of keeping things simple, for the rest of the book, we'll identify this position as the therapeutic position and the position that I have proposed as the biblical position. Okay. And that will help us <laughs> keep this down to a single word of unified terminology sure. that we can work with, Right, which is just so loaded. Like, what a play. It is. Right? It totally I mean, is. come on, guy. And... And I hate it when we do stuff like that. Right. And and I've talked about it throughout history, things that I think I would love to be a part of recapturing those. Mm-hmm. But I'm a nobody in the splash of all that's going on. Right. And so I'm always torn between are we going to try to recapture some of these things mm-hmm. or are we just setting ourselves up to be perpetually misunderstood? Right. Yeah, it's tough, man. It's tough. No, I no, I get it. I get it. I'm part of groups, Christian groups online, who you know some of them want to distance themselves from the term evangelical because of all that entails. You know, that's evangelical is a voting block in the states. Mm-hmm. It's not a doctrinal theological position. 
Well, no, it is a theological position. It's just become used to describe a certain group of people, the majority of which who don't show up to church on Sunday. Yeah, so at what point, at what point does the word, do you have to just cut yourself free sure. from it and come up with a new way to describe it? Yeah. Um, that's a that's a real consideration. No, I know, and there's no easy answer. There's right. There's no easy and answer. So, and so if somebody came, in to me, came up to me and they were like, your church, mm-hmm. are you fundamentalist? I tell them no. Yeah, I don't. Even them, though we technically are, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Even though, even though Spurgeon would have said yes, yes, and Moody would have said yes, yes. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to say no because of what it means. Because, today. because that's what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's it's and that's yeah. one. It makes doing a history podcast hard. It does because we're gonna side with the fundamentalist. Hundred percent. And people are going to be like, oh, my goodness. <gasps> I knew that they were conservative. But fundamentalists. And, you know, here, I'm going I'm to throw, throw this out there, too. Uh, a lot of times people want to equate conservative and fundamental. Mm-hmm. I think classically that's doable. But as you start building your own fences, right? you are taking liberal—you're taking— the liberation to build the fence. Hmm. Instead yes. of being conservative to say, right. God builds the fences. Yeah. And if God didn't fence that, I'm yeah. not fencing that. Yeah. Whereas a lot of modern kind of quote unquote fundamentalists are drawing lines that scripture doesn't necessarily draw. And then calling themselves conservatives. Yeah. And I yeah. would say, no, that's a very liberal approach. Yeah. Well, it's like that video of the speaker we were, <laughs> you were watching. and You just talked about how like if a man grows hair on his face, God's not going to answer his prayers. It's like... That's not only that's not only extra biblical, but if you're if you if you were gonna be a stickler, and I don't think I don't think in in our new covenant context, like whether a guy has a beard or not has any real consequence. But mm-hmm. like if I you hope not. if you really really wanted to make the argument, it would be in favor of beards, yeah, not as an opposition. And yet there's these massive movements that exist to the nation south of us that seem to think that's a big deal, like worth mentioning. It just it's crazy. It's crazy. I'll call it crazy, and I call it crazy to their face if I yeah. have the it's, chance. Yeah, and, and that's that's the difficulty with terminology. Sure, as it shifts. Yeah, and yeah. and so I'm gonna say that when people use the word conservative, mm-hmm. that's one that I would love to. I think that mm-hmm. I'm a very conservative interpreter of scripture. Yeah, because I'm not gonna build fences. Right, and I'm not gonna knock down fences. Right. And I think when people hear he's a very conservative person, they're going to equate that to the modern concept of conservative as it equates to the modern concept of fundamentalist who are fence builders. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I hope everyone is confused now that we've chased this rabbit all over the place. Woo! Okay. So let's, okay. So we're going to look, we're going to look at, at, at this era of particularly Canadian Baptist history and sorry for our, our group of listeners in New Zealand if this means nothing to you, but but here's the thing here's the thing that New Zealanders, our our Kiwi friends, can can resonate with. Yeah, because we've learned that there's more than just yeah, Sarah. There there's there's a group. Just as New Zealand kind of has to suffer in the shadow of Australia, and you're constantly confused for people from Australia, and you're trying to kind of own your distinct culture from them. 
because they're bigger and have more people. That's a that's a Canadian reality that you know mm-hmm. we live with every day, in the shadow of our American brothers, and we love them, but it's it's tough. It's tough to find kind of <laughs> a sense of significance in in light of the the big thing. Your significance is in Christ. Amen. Hey, there you go. Oh, look at you. Okay, so we're gonna look at this era of history through the lens of a figure that most people listening to this podcast have never heard of. Mm-hmm. I can confidently say that. Sure. A few might. I know a couple for sure do, but most won't. His name is Thomas Todd Hunter Shields, or as he was more commonly known later in life, T.T. Shields. So Thomas was born in 1873 in Bristol, England. He was the fifth of eight children born to Thomas Sr. and Maria Davis. Thomas Sr., was an Anglican minister who broke with the established church and then served as a primitive Methodist minister before coming to Baptist convictions. Thomas Jr., T.T. Shields, the, the main guy we're talking about, uh, often went with his father and traveled with him on his preaching journeys throughout the surrounding countryside. And in 1888, the family immigrated to Canada uh, which was a very common thing. Um, in fact, that that era of history, there was like a significant portion of, of people who lived in Canada who were actually born in Britain, like sig- significant. Um, Thomas Sr. took up a pastorate of the Baptist Church in Plattsville, Ontario, which is Plattsville. That's what I was going to ask. Is about 25 minutes from where we are right now. I drive yeah. past it on my way to school on a weekly basis. That's, you know, that's not surprising. So one thing that it, listeners from around the world won't know, we always say our American listeners, but we know that our listeners around the world mm-hmm. won't know about Canada is, at least in Ontario, I can't say this for all the other provinces, like people, according to their, the culture they left, they immigrate here in pockets mm-hmm. and the city names are sort of like pocketed together. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, for instance, Stratford. Yeah. It's an English city. It is. Shakespeare. Shakespeare grew up in Stratford. Yes. In England. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, so, our town, a town just to the side of us, and the biggest major city near us is London. Right. <laughs> right? Um, and then you have Kitchener. Kitchener. Which is... It's essentially a German Which immigration. Which was named after Lord Kitchener after the name was changed from Berlin. Right. Because it was German immigrants, and then the World War One, they're like, we can't call it Berlin anymore. Right. <laughs> and so and so that it would be a part of this sort of like hub of right. the English-named towns. Right, Just right. kind of makes sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he was in Plattsville. And although T.T. Shields grew up in the church— um, he didn't come to faith as a at a young age, but he he would recount that he was actually saved during a sermon from a visiting preacher when he was about eighteen. <laughs> What's this? What's so funny? Parents run into this all the time, mm-hmm. where they're like trying to speak wisdom into their kids. Yeah, and then a school teacher says the same thing that they've been, or a, a football Youth coach leader or whoever. Yeah. Right, and they're like, 
wow, yeah. did you know? And you're like, I've been telling you that your whole life. <laughs> it, it even happens for sermons, right? Yeah. Oh, no, totally. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I feel like my wife definitely responds better to your sermons than mine. <laughs> <laughs> Just something about it. In any case, uh, first jo- yeah, so the visiting preacher preached on 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I'm sure Tom Sr., had taught that to his son, but mm-hmm. he didn't hear it till he was 18. Yep. So he was baptized shortly after, started teaching Sunday school the following year. And then in 1894, his dad, Tom Sr., he got sick. And so the young T.T. Shields, who went by Todd, was the short form of his middle name, he decided like he was able to fill the pulpit for three consecutive Sundays. And that sparked the beginning of his ministry career, hmm. kind of out of necessity. And like his hero, his hero was Charles Spurgeon. And in fact, T.T. Shields would come to be known as the Spurgeon of Canada. T.T. Uh, Shields never received formal training at a seminary or Bible college, but was considered by his peers to be highly educated, intellectually um, sharp by his peers throughout his life. He received kind of these like... Um, these doctorates, what are those doctorates they give out to be the, the kind of honorary doctorates? Yeah, the honorary doctorates. Yeah, but he he actually, he never spent any time in formal education beyond high school. Yeah, kind of kind of the Southern Baptist equivalent of this would maybe be for some H.A. Ironside. Okay. Ironside in this exact same era. Yeah. Does the whole no formal training but ends up writing books. For those who do. Who do, yeah. yeah. You got to read this book to get your master's by this guy who didn't do yeah. anything. And, and you know what? To be fair, there Some are a number of... built different. There are a number of times. I, I said this when I was working my master's. I, I still say it now. Sometimes I feel like I'm paying thousands and thousands of dollars for someone to go, this is a great book. You should read it and tell me what you think. It hits a little too close to home. I can't, I can't yeah. comment on so, that right now. So there is a, there is a lot to be learned without... Yeah. Formality. Oh, there is. Yeah. So at, tw- at the tender age of 21, he takes up his first senior pastor in Florence, Ontario, which for our Canadian listeners is not far from Chatham. Okay. Uh, kind of between London and Chatham, closer to Chatham. And he would later serve at churches in Delhi, which is not far from where I grew up, Dutton, and Hamilton. Hmm. And at all of these churches, they saw a significant growth while he was serving there, he was, by all accounts, an excellent preacher and a natural-born leader. His first kind of big church opportunity, right? Because that's a whole thing in sometimes sometimes in certain circles, right? Like, yeah, you got your churches, but then you got your, you know, your heavy-hitting flagship type, you know. Right. So he was at Adelaide Street Baptist in London. Mm-hmm. And so... He's there, and and think about Adelaide Street. So he's called there in 1904. He's there for six years, and you know the church is seeing growth. And one of the one of the interesting things written about him during this time is that T.T. Shields was he was conservative in his theology, but he wasn't averse to kind of these bold, imaginative, out of the box ideas. Mm-hmm. Right, so when when their evening service, when attendance of their evening service went beyond what their building could could contain, you know, he came up with the idea to rent um, a local theater, right? 
and and then you know and then in certain in certain instances like you know he's he's rent you know he's he's you know he's using some of the the places and venues in his area to kind of um expand their ministry the scope of ministry that they had and this was a very unconventional idea at this time yeah right because like no everything the church did was in the church building and that's what you did um and he's kind of kind of breaks from that um and then in 1910 is when he goes to Jarvis Street Baptist Church in Toronto. And he would be at Jarvis Street Baptist for 45 years until he died in 1955. Mm-hmm. This was a large congregation, very illustrious past, affluent membership, uh, considered to be kind of the flagship of the convention of Baptist churches at the time. Yeah, still still a known church. Still, yeah, in, still significant in the area. Yeah. Um and it would be while he's here that he does some of his greatest work and also gets kind of embroiled in some of the the craziest controversies. Mm-hmm. Um and a lot of the a lot of the the issues that he gets involved in um have to do with the Divinity School at McMaster University. So it was originally founded in 1881 as Toronto Baptist College. The first president, who was Senator William McMaster, uh, had bequeathed a huge amount of money to the school, and so they renamed it McMaster University. And it was kind of the crown jewel of the Baptist's the Canadian Baptist Convention. Um, And it was designed to be the primary place where future ministers would be trained for ministry in the denomination. And and, and, and officially, they had a very theologically conservative stance um, that's outlined in their founding documents. And in fact, even if you go online today, some of their kind of statement of faith is still, you would say, okay, yeah, that's relatively, yeah. relatively conservative, relatively solid. Um, but from early times McMaster became home to those who taught the more modernist theologically liberal views. So on the surface, they're kind of a bastion of scriptural authority, but you know, the big names in the theological world, they want to draw them in, even if they don't align with where they're at. Right. And that's, that's man, Chasing the name, chasing the name, chasing the name can yeah. be a very dangerous thing. Yeah. So guys like William Newton Clark, who was the professor of New Testament interpretation, he was considered to be the Schleiermacher of American theology. If you remember Schleiermacher, you know the kind of things that he was into. Uh, we talked about him a couple of weeks ago. Um, so in 1909, um, Doctor Elmore Harris. No relation. No relation. Uh, brought in um, charges within the fel- or within the the convention against a McMaster professor, uh, a guy by the name of I. G. Matthews, and he claimed that what he taught was uh, disturbing and destructive to the historicity, truthfulness, and, te- and integrity of the Word of God. And so, you know, the convention kind of passes these resolutions to say, okay, McMaster, like, keep a closer tab on the guys that you're hiring. Yep. But but nothing really occurs 
beyond that. They nothing kind of, of just consequence. Keep, nothing yeah. of consequence. And then in 1919, things would kind of open up again when in October, uh, there's an issue of the Canadian Baptist, which was a publication for the Baptist churches in Canada, if you couldn't catch it by the name. Mm-hmm. Um, and it contained an, an unsigned editorial um, article and that was entitled The Inspiration and the Authority of Scripture. And when people read it, they're like, okay, this is just like an all-out attack on the idea of biblical inspiration, which is a which is a a tightly held Baptist doctrine. And so T.T. Shields, who is a pastor at this point at Jarvis Street, he pens a response and he says, I cannot understand how anyone who loves the word of God could carefully read your editorial without being deeply grieved and indignantly angry. And then he writes letters to literally every pastor within the convention. He mails literally, like, he mails letters to all the churches and to tell them to send your full quota of delegates to the next annual meeting, the kind of meeting that you were just at, yeah. in order to deal with this. Right. And the result in Ottawa was the most highly attended convention recorded up to that time. And Shields brought up a resolution condemning the article, which was overwhelmingly approved. Mm-hmm. And he kind of, in that, became this new champion of conservatism or fundamentalism mm-hmm. within Canadian Baptists. And so it's interesting to, to see that, like, using those types of, those forums as ways to kind of combat things, right? And the issues, obviously, coming from within seminaries is not something entirely new. No. Seminaries, seminaries have been, throughout all of church history... Where some of these things find their their first steps, mm. and they're a very dangerous place for these things to find their first steps. the The real problem with with these kinds of things being birthed in seminaries is they become duplicated, yeah, without being checked, yeah, right. So a a, a teacher comes into a seminary. And decides he's going to start putting out some notion. He's putting it out to a large number of people, student body, mm-hmm. who are not his peers intellectually, else they would not be students. Sure. Um, that are very eager and excited to learn new things. Yeah. And you take you take a, a college age kid. And you throw something out there like you've never heard this before. And all of a sudden they're like, wow, right? I'm running with that. Right. Uh, or, or just an, an older person who's eager to learn, right? Like this is what I paid for, right? You're just going to tell me what my pastor always gets out of the scripture as well or what the commentary says. What I, I could do that without you, but like this is the place to go and learn a new thing, a new insight, another level of depth. And 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 so the, the place is just ripe for this kind of thing to find a foothold. So it happens, it can go unchecked, and uh and eventually what happens is as these students become pastors, it spreads. Yeah. Right? 
because they're going to go all over the country, right? Starting churches or pastoring churches, and so the so seminaries, it is it is the utmost importance that pastors are vetted mm-hmm. and vetted well. Yeah, I think we could even do a better job of that. I think that would be a great thing for denominations and associations to supply for their churches is a better vetting process. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, vetting seminary professors, I would argue might even be more important. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, and so what ends up happening is despite these, these measures that are taken by the convention, McMaster just kind of keeps doing what they're doing and, uh, they end up hiring a, um, a professor by the last name of Marshall, which happens to be my first name, mm-hmm. and so let's just let's just note, Elmore mm-hmm. was a first name, but my last name, right? And then Marshall, a good guy, <laughs> <laughs> and Marshall is my first name, but last name, and he's uh, let's call him not a good guy. Um, I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, so so it probably means nothing. So. <laughs> Probably. Um, so T.T. Shields is actually alerted by a colleague in England about where Professor Marshall is at. And and so they bring to light these concerns that he has a, a moral influence theory of the atonement. So, so Christ's death on the cross was not actually him paying the sins paying for the, for our sins, but just kind of a, a, supposed to influence us into being better people. Mm-hmm. Uh, he denied a bodily resurrection. He rejected uh, depra- moral depravity and had a very loose view in biblical inspiration. Now, obviously, there's debate back and forth on how valid these things were, but nevertheless, they, they caused quite the uproar. And, and Shields used kind of—he had a weekly publication because on top of all the stuff that he was doing, he also <laughs> wrote a weekly newspaper uh, called The Gospel Witness. And— and he kind of brings this to the great, you know, his readership. And, you know, at the 1926 convention, um, a resolution was passed for Shields that, that, that required Shields to apologize for his unjust attacks. Otherwise, um, he'd be, you know, fired from the Board of Governors and banned from the convention gathering. So, so for whatever reason, the degree to which he went after these professors was, was frowned upon. Mm-hmm. And like, historically the guy is known for being a bit of a bulldog. So like, let's, let's, you know, let's be clear about that. Like he's the kind of guy that would go after things if he felt they were right. wrong. Um, but he's not going to apologize. And, you know, and so he was declared, you know, persona non grata mm-hmm. within the convention. Um, he leaves the meeting along with somewhere between two and 300 other attendees who walked from the convention location down the street back to Jarvis Street Baptist. And in the following months, there's a number of meetings that, that happen. And the they end up founding um, a new group of churches. Um, and this, so this, there's this new venture of churches um, that that kind of coalesce outside of um, of the, the the traditional convention, and they become known as the Union of Regular Baptist Churches of Ontario and Quebec. 
as opposed to the convention. Okay. Um, like-minded, conservative, biblically orthodox Baptist churches. So that's that's kind of initially what happens. And then, you know, during the 20s, there's all this conflict that, that, that keeps going on, right? And he uses the gospel witness, his his publication as a means to kind of further some of these conversations. And there's all these discussions about, you know, what what is going on you know within within the evangelical church and 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 so what he ends up doing in 1926 is that he decides he's going to open a new educational institution because McMaster has kind of gone in this direction yep. he's going to start a new institution that came to be known and continues to exist today as the Toronto Baptist Seminary right TBS Mm-hmm. As no, no, I know some guys who went there. Good school. Yep, I Sol- know a number of guys. There. Solid, yeah. Um, and so he's already been kind of teaching classes on the side. So, so what he's doing is he's he's pastoring a large church. He's editor in chief of a weekly publication, and he's running the show at a seminary that he's just founded, which is. <laughs> Unbelievable, but that's yeah. the kind of thing he's doing. He's a he's a high capacity guy. Yeah, and and the interesting thing is, <clears throat> in some ways, you want to say these things haven't shifted. They're these are still very much the notions that we have today, right? right? So McMaster's is a seminary, mm-hmm. as a seminary is liberal. Yeah, and they are into liberal theology, and yet. I know guys who have gone through McMaster and have come out on the other side, great pastors, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're listening and you're like, oh my goodness, my pastor is working on a graduate degree at McMaster, that might not mean... Yeah. Oh, yeah. You've also got to note that there are not a whole lot of seminaries in Canada that can offer a doctorate. Yeah, there's very few, and none of them... Well, i got to be careful how I phrase this. The overwhelming majority are not going to be in line doctrinally with where your church is at. They're not classically fundamentalist. No. Yeah. Or appropriately conservative. They don't believe the Bible's true, folks. If we want to use broken labels. The majority of the places that will give you a PhD in anything related to theology in the nation of Canada do not believe the Bible is true. I would even argue D-Min. Yeah, sure. Sure. Um, And I want to issue a little bit of grace to Tyndale. I know people who have come through Tyndale fine. Yeah. How many years ago? Oh, sorry. But but <laughs> battling, but still fighting these battles yeah, yeah, sure, against sure, sure. against liberal theology and those oh, kinds yeah. of things. Oh, yeah. So uh, so I, I just want to I want to say these things continue. One because it's not that long ago. No, no, no. We're talking. No. We are within a hundred years now of mm-hmm. of modernity, not modernity of the current day. Uh, so one, it's not that long ago. But but these things remain as far as these labels for TBS and uh, McMaster. Yeah. Yeah. No, so so what ends up happening, you know, TT Shields, so he kind of he he takes a group that kind of splits off from the convention and in the late 20s and into the 30s there's there's more controversy. TT Shields kind of is one of these kind of 
combative types, admittedly. Mm-hmm. And he kind of gets into a beef with a couple of groups, these kind of parachurch organizations. One is the uh, Baptist Young People's Association, and the other is the Women's Ministry Society. And the concern was partly these groups were meeting without any kind of church oversight. Mm-hmm. The way they managed their finances was not conventional. And what was spreading dramatically within these two groups was something that T.T. Shields was uh, vehemently opposed to, something he called Schofieldism, but we know as dispensationalism. Okay. So, again, he's... His fault, I would say, if he, if you know, if we could, if we could fault T.T. Shields with anything, is is kind of drawing hard lines on particular issues that maybe he didn't need to, such as eschatology or such as how parachurch organizations operate. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were problems with that. He was in opposition to these groups. He was in opposition to the teaching that was kind of spreading rapidly throughout these groups because. Uh, prior to this, this was not normative within Canadian Baptist circles, right? Um, and and that's where that's where we have a. I would say a, it's impossible for us to make a judgment call over whether or not it should have been spoken on, right? And and I, I say that because we have seen what has happened over the last hundred years as these things have played out. Mm-hmm. For him, all of this is very new. Right. The spread of the mass spread of liberal theology. Right. We reject it right alongside of him mm-hmm. because we've seen what it's matured to. Sure. And we've seen the churches that have taken the modernist movement walk away from God entirely to the point of holding and appointing atheist pastors. Um, and being what they would call, they would identify and label themselves now Christian atheists, right? right Which right, is, right, right. we would argue ridiculous. So we've seen the maturation of that, mm-hmm. and it was what he feared it would be, mm-hmm. right? He nailed it, right? Yeah. We've also seen dispensationalism not run people off. Sure. From truth. Right. And right. so as we've seen that play out, mm-hmm. we have more grace for it. Yeah, we realize it's right? not a primary issue, yeah. Where he might have felt like it was because of some of the things that were being taught at the time. Right. right. And so as these things are all unfolding, all new, um, like we, we can take that position over whether or not he should have been so caught up on that based yeah. on hindsight. Yeah. Which is a bit of an unfair yeah. Judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. yeah. So because of that beef, there's a split within the split. But the two groups, so the Fellowship of Independent Baptist Churches of Canada um, and the kind of Union of Regular Baptists, they end up reuniting in 1953 to form the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptist Churches of Canada, which is our association. Right. So there's a split that happens over those issues when, as they're happening in the 30s. Mm-hmm. But then over 20 years later, they end up coming back together to form the FEB, as it's you know colloquially known. Right. Um, 
Yeah, Shields is one of these guys, he, you know, he, but he did recognize some things that were happening, right? Like, in 1925 in Canada, Presbyterians, Methodists, and Congregationalists, they merge to form the United Church of Canada. Right. And yep. here's what Shields had to say at that time. He said, we wonder how this new organization will justify its pretentious title. <laughs> <laughs> which I just love. We're the United Church of Canada, are you? But he was convinced that this union was due to a what he called a lessened conviction of the gospel revelation rather than to a deepening affection for our other Christian bodies. Right. So he's like, what, what, what's, what's bringing this unity is not a greater love for people who are different, but a lowering of the standard, lowest mm-hmm. common denominator, in order to create this kind of false unity. Right. So so this is the this is the issue of of tolerance even in uh, denominational kind of a conversation, right? Right. So the the issue of tolerance man, I long for a day when we're not denominationally divided. Yeah, that'd be cool. Because I believe that that's what God wants for his church. I believe yeah. that's God's plan for his church and I believe mm. that day will come. Wow, you sound post mill. I didn't say I'm just teasing. before I'm te- the return of I'm Christ. I'm teasing. I'm teasing you. I'm teasing. I'm saying when all things are restored. I'm teasing. Uh, so I believe these things. I long for these things. I pray that exact prayer. Yeah. Yeah. Right now, we see as through a mirror dimly lit. Mm. But when we see face to face, as if face to face, all of this will melt away. We'll find out where we were right, where we were wrong. Things will matter less. Things will matter more. And we will be unified in that way. Yeah. When the United Church forms, T.T. Shields is right. What they're, what they're doing is not saying, listen, the division of the church is an ungodly division. I mean, they might have said that. Sure, but they're not gathering under the banner of, we hold these truths of God mm-hmm. united. Yeah. And this is, this is the foundation. The foundation was togetherness. Mm-hmm. And when the foundation is togetherness, what you end up doing is saying, none of your convictions matter, right? except for that you would set them aside so right. that we would be together. Yeah, unity above truth. Right. right. And, so, and so in that, we have watched, as the United Church has matured over the years, yeah. truth become something that is completely up to the person involved. Right. Um, We've seen no hard stances taken on anything biblical. Mm -hmm. Uh, What one United Church believes Mm -hmm. can vary greatly from another United Church. I have come across pastors from United Churches that I would say, this person understands the gospel and is a brother or sister in Christ. Cool. And I've come across pastors in the United Church, where I've just been like, this person is uh, open and excited to seeing social change, Mm. and that's what they're here for. Right. And it really has nothing to do with the Bible. Yeah. This is is a tool. Mm -hmm. All of this is a mechanism for bringing about social change. Right. Oh, yeah. And it goes beyond that. I, I have a friend who served as an associate at a United Church, and his senior pastor, he was like, 
look, I'm not, I'm not spreading rumors. She practiced witchcraft openly and mm-hmm. saw no discrepancy between openly practicing witchcraft and being a minister in the United Church. Yeah. Like and this is a first-hand account from a guy that I trust, right? So like so like that is that is the reality. And and what TT Shields would have to say, you know, in regards to this this movement, he would say, "I challenge the men of compromise to show me their revival. Where is it? Mm-hmm. Where are the fruits of it?" Right. Right? And we could still say that today, right? There's where is it? Yeah. Where it, where is it? It is still be- because it was a conglomeration of multiple denominations. It was massive when it, it started. It was massive. It is still the largest. It is non-mainline, although I would argue they're very mainline at the same time. Oh yeah. Very uh, the largest non-mainline denomination in Canada. Yeah, oh yeah. Uh dying daily. Oh yeah. Church is closing Not regularly. For Not for long. I, I, I don't think it'll last for long. And uh and I and I think some people some people look to the the place where they are, the United Church, and say, How on earth did they get here? This is that story. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh how could they come to a place where they would believe such things? Well, they unified by saying, I'm setting aside my convictions. Right. Right. Um, so because we are broken human beings with limited capacities for knowing and practicing truth, Mm -hmm. not all of our convictions are right convictions. Right. And at times we will cause damage by clinging to convictions. Right. Yeah. It is all the more dangerous to throw them away. Right. Yeah. It's tough, man. It's, it's. It's not, it's tough, right? So T.T. Shields, the guy we've been talking about for a while, just because he's kind of the the lens through which we've been. He's kind an of, example. He's of, an example, yeah. right, for us. You know, and he's, you know, he was known as the battling Baptist and he's, you know, kind of lauded by some and kind of criticized by others and probably rightfully so on both ends. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he was also a product of his time and situation, Right, like it's it's tough, right? Because because what is what was on the line, right? In his time and era, what was on the line? Well, what was on the line was that the place in which the the ministers, the pastors, and you know, and missionaries of the future, the the environment in which they were being brought up was dominated by professors who did not uphold the truths of Scripture. Mm-hmm. And like for him, that's a life or death battle. And you know what? And and so if you know if there's a sense in which we could we could evaluate him in, in the kind of the the vitriol and the the you know the the sharpness with which he kind of went after his opponents seems unfair, unkind, gentle, unbecoming of a pastor. But again, we have to understand what was at stake there. Right, yeah. and we've had to have this conversation with a, a number of characters over over our church history because if you look up T.T. Shields, you're going to see some positive things, you're going to see some negative things. You know, he is neither as great as his proponents nor as bad as his opponents. I think uh, just like most people yeah. in history. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I, I I look at him as as being a guy who he was built for a time such as when he lived. Yeah. Right. And that doesn't that doesn't mean to kind of equate him with, you know, biblical characters or anything like that. But just to say that, like, 
there are times when, you know what, like that, that quiet, gentle, you know, not going to stir the pot, you know, just focus on what we got going on here. Like that is, that is necessary and needed. And, and I think that that is undervalued often is mm-hmm. that kind of that quiet leadership. But I don't think we should be too quick to say that, that being outspoken, being vocal and going, going to quote unquote battle over things that really matter is right. always wrong. Right. Right. I think there are times when it's called for. And and I don't know if, you know, our situation right now is a time that's called for that sort of behavior. I I don't know. I don't know. I, I think it I think it depends on where you're at. Right. Sure. So so for instance, I don't think just speaking as a Feb pastor. Yeah. What I heard this week when people were talking about the direction of the Feb. Mm. The notion was we stand firm Mm -hmm. and we hold the line Mm -hmm. and we're not going to change what we know to be eternally true because society is changing around us. Right. In which case, we have opportunity to just pastor the flock that God's given us Mm. and not fight a battle for keeping truths true Mm, within our camp yeah 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 i have friends in the cboq yeah who are in a very different place yeah where we're a century moved from what would be labeled the modernist movement but liberal theology still is eating away at their denomination has caused major splits um their seminaries and their leadership are falling into this same pattern, and they are in the midst of fighting this battle, right? So for some of those friends of mine, they're going to look at the story of T.T. Shields, and it's going to hit so close to home, they're going to be stirred in their spirit, right? Right, Because this is the same line they're fighting. Mm -hmm. I also have a really dear friend who eventually just had to step away from it and say, if this is where you're going, my church is going to find a fellowship in the fellowship. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and that's a hard thing to walk away from this group that you've been building into and working to be a part of. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think we can, you're right to say we are not in that place right now. No, I don't, I don't think, but so. I think that's, Hyper contextualized to where we are personally, yeah. and 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 there are those who are fighting this battle even now. Yeah, because I think I think it's easy for us to look at figures like him and like others, right? Whether it's like a Martin Luther or a John Knox. I mean, we've talked about these guys who are Spurgeon, right? We've talked about these guys over the course of church history, and you know we've said this kind of thing before, but it bears repeating again that like there are times when we can examine the you know, the things that they did or the things that they said and wonder, how could they? Mm-hmm. Is that really how Jesus would want us to conduct ourselves in those situations? But to understand our own context and where we're at and to say, okay, well, we're not there. You know, we're not there. Yeah. And we need to be careful. We need to be careful in who we make heroes of and who we make villains of. Yeah, I, I would say this. Have you ever sent a text message and wish you hadn't? 
Yeah. Okay, so immediately, <laughs> it's out there. Yeah. You can't bring it back, yeah. but you wish you could. Yeah. Even some of these people, given 100 years, 200 years, 500 years, yeah. to watch it play out yeah. and to think about it, might also say, yeah, I should have gone about that differently. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and to his credit, here's, a, here's something I will say, and this is going to sound heavy, but I... I after reviewing kind of the story, I, I think it's I think it's it's valid to say that the fact that you and I pastor a Baptist church in this part of Canada that has historically upheld the authority of God's word on a variety of things mm-hmm. is thanks in part to TT Shields. Yep. God used him in a particular time in a particular place in spite of his failings in spite of everything, um, to uphold a, at least a, 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 what was initially a minority, which is now fast, like quickly overshadowing the group from which they departed. Um, and I think in part because of the faithfulness of, of leaders like him and faithfulness of leaders since then and, and today and hopefully into the future, that we uphold God's word. And so we are classically fundamentalist and and and, and yeah. in that that variety of the definition of that word i am unapologetically a fundamentalist yeah and i and i would say this is a a closing charge mm. a closing thought um sometimes we can look at church history and we can say oh that's neat mm. that happened right. <laughs> i i think the lesson that we learn from this particular controversy mm-hmm. that has, uh, again, we're going to be very specific and talk about Canada. Sure. Uh, yeah. Although it happens all it over everywhere. the Presbyterians world. Presbyterians in the States, Baptists um, in England, everywhere. The, the lesson we can learn from it is this. We today either, as you just said, stand on the shoulders of those who stood strong, mm-hmm. or we are caught in their mess, trying to clean it up, trying to revise it, trying to fix broken things. Right, right. That is the circumstance that every church is perpetually in. <laughs> yes. As a pastor, it's my job and it's your job to make sure that the next person behind us, whether it's the pastor that follows us immediately, mm-hmm. whether it's a next generation of pastors, mm-hmm. has shoulders to stand on right. and not a mess to clean. Yeah. Oh. Right? We, we're we in a place as pastors to help make that call. Yeah. Right? And we can get caught in just the immediacy of the work that we do and the faces that that work affects, right. and forget about the fact that we are serving more than our congregation. Mm-hmm. We're serving generations to come. Yeah, there's a legacy, and not a legacy in light of who we are and the, you know how people right. remember our name. Yeah, I feel you. But a legacy of what our work, li- right. what, what foundation we're laying for the future. And the same is true for congregants. Yeah. Like, this isn't just a pastoral charge. Yeah. If you're listening to this, I'm going to presume that you are a member of a local congregation. You should be if you're not. Unless you just clicked on the wrong podcast and can't figure out how to change it. (laughs) But as a congregational member, 
if you see drift, it's your position, mm. it's your obligation mm-hmm. to say, I'm not going to stand for this drift, Yeah, right? This is what I believe, this is what we have held to, and we'll stand firm. Because it doesn't matter how many pastors fight for these things if they're shouting into the wind. Yeah. Right? So in the same way that pastors have a a more visible role to play in this, Mm -hmm. that role is made pointless unless every congregational member Mm. takes it upon themselves. Not every in the universal sense, but congregational members, Mm -hmm. especially if God's gifted you to be an elder in a church yeah. or to take a teaching role yeah. to stand firm for what is true. And as you serve the people you have here today, mm-hmm. laying a foundation for the next generation to stand on. Yeah. So. Amen. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada. It is produced by Alex Walker. Take care, everybody. Sorry it's late.